I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The last chapter in 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 14. Paul says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you'll find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. We just spent a week with our grandchildren, and I know all of you have not had that blessing, but uh, we, we, we had an awesome week. Our granddaughter is 10 years old. Our grandson, Alistair, is three and a half going on four. Matter of fact, it'll be four next month, I think, June, something like that. Don't tell him I don't know his birthday. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it was a fantastic week, but I got to tell you something. Uh, you know, it's been a while since we've had kids in the house, and there were moments that were a little bit of a challenge, especially with the the four-year-old who's just learning to test the limits of what the patients, uh, the adults may have. And uh, so we had had one night where we were making fudge and uh, Sammy, our granddaughter and I were making fudge and we kind of put it all in the mixer and had gotten into a pan and it was setting up and I put it in the refrigerator and Alistair was just getting ready to go to bed and he said, I'd like to have some candy, Grandpa. I said, no, we'll have to wait till tomorrow. He said, no, now. I said, no, no, we have to let it sit. It's going to wait for tomorrow. He went, no, no, I don't want to wait for tomorrow. I said, why not? He said, it takes too long. And it made me think, because I was right in the middle of prepping for this sermon, and, you know, we all know that tomorrow's coming. Alistair knows that tomorrow's going to come. You know he's going to go to bed. He's going to wake up in the morning. It's going to be a new day. We know tomorrow's coming. We know what the Bible says is coming But sometimes we think it just is going to take too long. So we don't always live like tomorrow is going to come 
soon. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The Bible tells us that tomorrow will come. And you know what it says about tomorrow? It says that it will be a day of reckoning. A day of reckoning. Now that, that, that's, that's one of those words that has a little bit of a, a, a cloud hanging over it. It sounds kind of ominous. That, you know, there's something on the horizon that, that doesn't look all that desirable. But there will be a day of reckoning. And our passage today has an echo of that day of reckoning in it. Our sermon today is called Paul's Final Warnings. This is our last in the series of I Am Content. Uh, we've done, uh, this will be the 19th uh, part of that. We've covered 2 Corinthians in 19 parts, and, and uh, we will move on. Uh, next week, we have Charles Wilson coming up from Roanoke. He's an EFCA church planner that's trying to get his ministry uh, started down there, so he'll be sharing with us next week. And the week after, we'll start our new series in Second Timothy. Now, we had a class last year uh, that we conducted over in the townhouse at 10 o'clock where we went through the structure of Second Timothy. We, we outlined the book. We uh, discussed authorial intent. We discussed the message of the book and uh, how the structure of the book flows. And um, when we were done with that class, we assembled all the outlines, and I'm going to preach from the work we did in Second Timothy last year. Uh, so you get a chance, for those of you that were with us in class, you get a chance to see what the teaching looks like, and, um, and I'm sure everybody will be evaluating me as we go through that. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it, and we may do that again this winter. Uh, so, so let's get back to 1 Corinthians 13 here. Uh, Paul, Paul's at the end of the letter. He spent the first third of the letter reminding the Corinthians of what was, reminding them of the foundational teaching that he had given them, um, the gospel as it first came to them, kind of reminding them of their, their, their origins. He, he took the second half, the second third of the letter, telling them what is, kind of discussing the situation in Corinth, what, what was going on in the church and, and what was happening. And now in this last third of the letter, he's, he's been talking about what will be, what's going to come. So in chapter 12, which we were, we were in last time we were together, uh, Paul claims that he is content. And it, it's kind of an important part of the book uh, because Paul has been through a lot of bad experiences and uh, a, a lot of tough times in his life. And his accusers, those people that are accusing him to the Corinthian church, are using those hard times as evidence that Paul is not an apostle. So Paul lays out a lot of the things he's been through and he says he's been content. Now, when Paul says he's content, he's not talking about necessarily being happy. He's not trying to put a happy face on all the hard times he's had. He's talking about being satisfied. Paul is satisfied, not necessarily with the situations in his life, but with what God has provided him with, what God has put on his table. And so Paul was dealing with that. And meanwhile, he talked a little bit about the, he received a thorn in his side. We don't know what the thorn was, uh, but as he prayed for God to take that thorn away, he prayed three times, and God spoke to him, saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So, Paul has been very wise in how he has put the letter of 2 Corinthians together, wise in how he's sharing this with the Corinthians, and what he's done is he's kind of 
under the radar, posed a question to the Corinthian church. Is God's grace sufficient for you? Is what God has given you sufficient? Now, that that question rings true of us as well. Are we pleased? Are we happy with what God has given us, or do we want more? Are we dissatisfied with what we have? have, Do we find ourselves in a position where we say, okay, I've been saved, I received God's grace, but you know what? That's not enough to make me happy. I need this over here as well. So this is what's resonating in the Corinthians as they read the letter. Is God's grace sufficient? It should resonate in us as well. Furthermore, we have to ask ourselves, what will we boast of? Now, Paul is boasting of his weaknesses. Will we boast of our power, of our capabilities, or will we boast of our weaknesses? And, and, and even after that, we see another question is, are you going to follow these false teachers? Are you going to listen to these people that have caused so much trouble in the church? Are you going to allow them to disrupt you, or are you going to listen to me, Paul says? So, they're promising power and esteem. And so Paul wants to know, do you want power or esteem or do you want weakness? Because God works in weakness, God doesn't work in your power. He doesn't work in your esteem. Will you humble yourselves, he wants to know, and do the work of a true apostle and bring glory to Christ instead of yourself? Now, that's Paul's basic message. The church is supposed to be about Christ. The church is supposed to be about the word of God. The church is supposed to be the bearer of the gospel. But the church at Corinth had lost focus of that. They were immature. They were self-centered. In the first letter, he calls them babies. He says, you know, every time you come together, it's an absolute mess. You need to straighten this thing out. So they're they're self-centered. People in the church had expectations, and there were certain expectations of Paul, and they were disappointed when those expectations weren't met, and that left them, as their disappointment rose in them, that left them ripe for somebody to come in and sow discontent. Could that happen today? Could that happen in this culture? You know, we live... We live in a world, a, a culture that is, is so self-centered and so based on consumerism. Now, have yeah, anybody here went to the supermarket last week? Anybody? Okay, we had two people who went to the supermarket last week. I spent a lot of time in the supermarket last week uh, because we had kids. <laughs> and, I didn't get the right brand of macaroni and cheese. Uh, I bought onions. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, you get it. <laughs> yeah, so so it, uh, when I go to the supermarket, I get my little cart, and I walk up and down the aisle, and I pick the things I want. And I leave the things that I don't want. I go shopping. Now, if you've ever met anybody that was looking for a church, they might have said to you, I'm shopping for a church. And we do that, don't we? We shop for church. We look for the things we like in a church. We look for the things we expect in a church. We look for people like us. We look for the programs that we like. We look for the type of music that we like. 
And sometimes the church doesn't meet those expectations. I've got to be honest with you. About a year and a half, two years ago, we had a group of people in this church that were dissatisfied with us as leaders, dissatisfied with me as a pastor, dissatisfied with the elders as leaders. And they began making their dissatisfaction known. They got a little group of people around them. There was whispers going on in the corners and everything. We sat down to talk to them. We couldn't come to agreement. What's the problem? Our expectations are not being met. And, well, they left. That's okay. That's good. I mean, you know, we had different expectations. But somebody came to me in the middle of all that and said, hey, I got a question for you. What's a good reason to leave the church? I said, well, I don't know. What do you think a good reason is? Well, I don't know. You know, I'm hearing this and I'm hearing that. And I said, oh, let's try this one here. Departure from the word of Christ. Departure from the word of God. Heretical teaching. Would those be good reasons to leave the church? Oh, that's a good answer. So, yes, it is. Failure to meet your expectations. You see, we're so, it's so imbued in us, the idea that the church is here to satisfy us. That's what Paul wants to know here. What is the church about? I mean, uh, embedded in all these other questions that he's asking here is, is the church about the people in the church or is it about the Savior of the church? So as we finish our series here, we're going to take a look at chapter 13. We're going to see how Paul walks the Corinthians through the right answer to these questions. So he's going to do it by making three closing statements. We will see Paul's exclamation in verses 1 through 4. We'll see his examination in verses 5 through 10. And we'll see his exhortation in verses 11 through 14. So let's take a look at his exclamation. Now in verse 1, this has to be taken in context. We remember this letter meant to be read all at one time. And Paul has mentioned in chapter 12, verse 4, that he was going to come a third time. He's repeated this a number of times. And it, that in, in doing this, in mentioning that he's coming for a third time, he kind of sets the tone for the legal requirement for a judgment to be made. Now, this is straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where it says, listen, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall, shall a charge be established. Now, the idea of a witness in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew in particular, uh, it kind of transfers to the New Testament and the Greek, is that it can be actually that somebody has seen something happen and will testify to the truth of that event. But it can also be the evidence of something, the evidence of a certain type of behavior. So it's not just necessarily what we would classically determine as a witness, but it can be the evidence of ungodly behavior. And Paul is saying, look, if I see the same thing in you three times, well, I've already warned you twice in verse 2, and if if I come back and it's still there, I'm not going to spare you. So when, I, when I return, I'm not going to spare you. Now we see a principle here in action that we have to understand completely and in context in order to understand what it means to us. So Paul has already told the Corinthian church that he has seen the Christ in them. 
He's already a witness to their salvation. They have the evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the church. And he's saying, I see the Spirit in you, but you know what? You have some problems. There are some things that you're not handling real well. And I've mentioned it twice, and it hasn't changed. If I come back a third time, there are going to be consequences. Now, we see this concept of consequences throughout the Old Testament. The whole history of the Hebrew people from Abraham going all the way through the end of the Old Testament is a history of consequences. They are God's children. They are God's chosen people. But they are constantly dropping the ball. They're constantly doing something wrong. They're constantly worshiping some other God, building some other altar, doing the wrong thing, partying when they shouldn't party in an inappropriate way. They're constantly violating the rules that God has placed upon them, and they never stop, they never cease being his children. They never stop being the chosen people of God. But there are consequences for their behavior. There are consequences for their sin. Not to be cut off completely from God, but frequently to be out from under his provision and protection. Frequently, people... People in the family will die. They'll they'll be without food. A famine will come. A plague will will come. A number of things happen, but there are no eternal consequences for them. Now, we don't want to get too deep into this, but the principle has been set in the Old Testament that there are consequences for the sinful behavior of God's people. Paul's saying the same thing here. I know you're saved. I see the Spirit in you, but you're not walking it out very well. And if I come back, there are going to be consequences for that. You're not going to be abandoned. God promised he'd never leave you or forsake you. You're not going to be cut out of heaven. God promised he would come and return you. We heard it from Conrad a little bit earlier. But there will be earthly, temporal consequences to what you do. And in verse 3 and 4, Paul lowers the boom here. And he gives them a, a theological lesson on the nature of power. In verse 3, he says, Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Now, see, these accusers have accused Paul of being weak. He's small. He's short. His voice is squeaky. He's not a very good speaker. He's been through all of these hard times. He's not very powerful at all. And so they want to see a display of power. They think some display of power will be the evidence of an apostolic calling on them. So they're running around talking about their power, their influence, saying, hey, Paul's not like this. He's not tall. He's not good looking. He doesn't have the speaking voice that we have. And, you know, and we've been here and we, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on and on. And Paul's saying, you're missing the point. You're not getting it. Paul all along has been trying to tell them that his weakness is actually a display of the power of God. It's an opportunity for God to come in and make something supernatural happening. So now he refers to Jesus Christ as an example in his power. He said for, in verse 4, for Jesus, he, Jesus was crucified in what? In weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So Paul reminds them of the cross. He says, you want to see power? Let's talk about the cross. Let's talk about the ministry of Jesus Christ. They would have been familiar with it. They would have known that for three years, as Jesus ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God, I mean, his ministry was incredible. 
Thousands of people followed him. There were healings. There was a casting out of demons. There were prophecies. There were powerful teaching, teaching with such authority that people couldn't understand where it came from. There were all kinds of miracles. There were all kinds of signs and wonders. And after all those physical displays of power, everyone left him. He was alone when he went to the cross. And the irony of that is they're looking for a display of power. They miss the most amazing display of power ever perpetrated in the history of all mankind because Jesus did his most powerful work by allowing himself to be nailed to the cross. Allowing himself to be hung there until he rendered his spirit unto the Father. He did his most amazing, most powerful work by submitting himself to the will of the Father. He displayed his own weakness so that the Father could display his incredible power by raising him up from the grave. Not only raising him up from the grave and getting victory over sin and death, but taking him up into heaven, seating him at his right hand, and putting all of creation at his feet. Paul says, that's the power that I move in. Now, just for clarity, the NIV says for verse 4, for to be sure, he was crucified, Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we, Paul, it's a royal we, are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Paul's saying, look, I've got nothing to prove. I'm not going to fall into this. I'm not going to get into a contest of who has more influence and who has more power. The power of God lies within me, Paul says. Paul's exclamation is that he lives in the power of God and he will rely on God's power, not his own, to deal with the Corinthians. Now, we need to understand this isn't a threat. This isn't God is going to smite you if I come back and you're still doing wrong. I love that word. Amen? (laughs) He knows Christ is in them. This is a word of trust. This is Paul saying, I will trust in the transformational power of the Holy Spirit in you to change you when I come. My prayer is that you change before I get there. That I see a miracle occur by the time I get back. God's calling to you to repentance. And I know Christ is in you and the power of God resides in you the same way it does in me. See, all along, they've accused Paul of being weak. Paul says, you know what? I am. I'm weak. And that's where my strength is. Because my God is strong and he lives in me. And when I get back to Corinth, you're going to see what his presence and power looks like. Now, to make all this happen, for them to to have a deeper understanding of it, in verses 5 through 10, Paul calls for them to examine themselves. Now, this is a turn of the tables. Again, if you're following in the letter, all along, they thought they were examining Paul, didn't they? I I mean, the accuser is saying, look at him. Look at how he speaks. Look at what he's teaching. Where is this guy when you thought he was going to show up? So all along, they thought they were examining Paul. And now Paul says this. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. 
I love this verse, and we have to be careful with it. We have to take it into context, because if we take this out of context, it's going to be some kind of litmus test for salvation. Don't you wish we had that? Don't you wish you could go down to CVS and buy the little salvation kit? And they got the little strips in there, and you put one on your tongue, and if you're saved, it turns green, and if you're doomed, it turns red, you know, fires of hell type thing. Don't you wish we could do that, and we'd have some assurance from that? Paul says, I've got a litmus test for you. You're not going to be able to buy it at CVS. We have to be very careful because Paul is aware of the fact that he's talking to a church that is by and large saved. And, and we know that because of what he says in, in 1221. Uh, he says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. He knows they're saved, but he knows that they're struggling. He knows that they have problems they're not dealing with correctly. He knows that they're just like us. Amen? Paul's telling the Corinthians, you know, you're looking at me. Look at yourself. Look around you. Look at what you're doing. Look at how you're acting. These accusers have led you down the wrong path. They're not acting like Christians. Maybe they're not. I know you are, but I'm not sure about these guys here, he says. So, he says, so test yourselves. And we've got to look at the entire content of the letter and everything that's in that content to understand what these tests are. The test is threefold. He says, look around. Are you impure? Are you immoral? Are you acting in a sensuous and worldly manner? Are you acting like Christians? Now, Paul knows they're not. So what he really wants to know is, do you even want to? Do you even have a desire to act like Christians? Is there anything inside you that tells you that something's wrong here? Do you understand that something has gotten off base? And all of this anger and all of this tension and all of this discontent that you have is not from the Lord. Do you get that? So that's the first element of the test. Second one is, how did they receive Paul? Now, Paul's been very smart here, okay? He has established his credentials as an apostle twice in in great detail. And he knows that they know that they were saved through his ministry. They have received this transformational power through the ministry of God, uh, of Paul. And they saw Paul work the signs and wonders. See how Paul's built this case here? They've seen the miracles that Paul performed. They know that Christ is in him, that he speaks the word of God. They know that God sent him to them, and Paul wants to know, are you going to listen to my counsel, or are you going to listen to the counsel of these troublemakers? Do they accept Paul, or do they reject him? Have they gotten to that point to where they're ready to reject Paul, the man God sent to them? And inherent to all this, are they even trying to be obedient to the word? You you see what Paul did here? He, He built his case for being God's representative. It's an undeniable case. Now he asks them, why aren't you listening to me? You know 
where I came from. You know what this is about. You've seen the change. Why aren't you listening? Now, bear in mind, these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're not just for the Corinthians. So the Holy Spirit in, inspired Paul to write this down, to say, here's what the test looks like. So it's not just for the Corinthian church, brothers and sisters. It's for you and me as well. It's for all of us. Are we acting like Christians? Do we accept or reject the word of God? Now, we know that God's not calling us to be perfect. We know that. I mean, Paul would have been aware of that just as well as anyone else. We mentioned a number of times during this series, Romans chapter 7, where Paul says, you know, I want to do the right thing. I just can't seem to do it. My, my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. So the real question becomes, because we're not being called to perfection, the real question becomes, do we have a desire for holiness? Is there some ember inside of us that whispers, that's wrong, what you're doing is wrong? Is there something inside that draws us closer to God? Maybe we don't read our Bible every day. But is there a thought in the back of our heads to say, you should be? Maybe we don't do the right thing when we're sitting at the red light and the guy in front of us doesn't move. And maybe we lose our temper. But is there something in our heart that goes, gee, that wasn't very nice. Maybe we think tomorrow is a long ways away. And we don't have to worry about it right now. Maybe there's something inside that goes, but what if he comes back right away? See, there's the question. Do we have a desire for holiness? And I got to tell you, that desire is the evidence of your salvation. That desire is the Holy Spirit in you drawing you to the Father convicting you not to punish you, not to make you feel bad about what you've done, but to wash it out of your life through repentance and to begin the work of sanctification in you. I got to be honest with you about this. If you're born again and you're hearing this message and you're worried about whether or not you're going to pass the test, you just passed it. Did you hear me? <laughs> That, that's that, that inner spark that is that desire to be closer to God that's drawing you to Him. But if you, you went to a rally, you went to a crusade, you were in a church one day, and there was this fantastic presentation of the gospel, and you responded to it, you walked down the aisle, you signed the card, you said the prayer they told you to say, and nothing changed. And there's no desire to be closer to God. I fear for your soul. It's the transformation. It's the draw to the Father that is the evidence of your salvation. How we respond to that will be different. We'll all be on different parts of our sanctification walk. We're all at different stages in our faith. But if Christ is in you, there's something that draws you into union with the Father. I would encourage you to respond to it. Paul poses this question, and you know what? It's a rhetorical question. He expects an affirmative answer. 
We know that because of the second half of verse 10 here. Or do you not realize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you. Don't you know this? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. There's no spark, no desire there. You may be in trouble. He has seen Christ in them, but he hasn't seen it in all of them. But still, for the majority of the congregation, Paul's convinced they're saved. And he hopes that they see salvation in him as well. I hope that you will find, verse 6, I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. Paul grieves over their backslidden state. And if you take a look at verses 7, 8, and 9, they're a little bit confusing. They're a little bit hard to interpret it. But here's what's going on. Uh, Because they're backslidden, Paul counts his ministry as somewhat of a failure in verse 7. He wants them to come to repentance. He wants them to be renewed. Yet, if, if they do come to repentance, if they are renewed before he gets there, verse 8 and 9, uh, he's happy to be weak. He's happy to have failed initially. Uh, if they begin to pursue a life of righteousness and begin to pursue a life, a life of holy living, See, Paul's not looking for credit. He's not looking for kudos. He's not looking for this power that they're talking about. All he wants to see is his children, his spiritual children, walking right before the Lord. And if that makes Paul look weak, he's happy to look weak. He just doesn't have a problem with that. And he says in verse 10, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for what? For building up and not for tearing down. Paul's coming back. It's a day of reckoning we were talking about. And if they're contrite, the reunion's going to be sweet. If not, then Paul will use the authority that is in him, the power of God in him, to bring them into correction. And he's going to do it for their welfare, not to hurt them. Now, I'm going to go back to recent experience I've had over this, because I've been dealing with a four-year-old for all week long. And there are times when he wanted to do things that I couldn't let him do, because I knew they were dangerous. I want to eat that. That's not a good thing to eat. Why? I want to eat it. No, we're not going to eat that. And he would look at me and he would be upset. And sometimes he would cry. And sometimes he would be hurt. I want to go over here. No, we can't go over there. We can't do that. I want to to go pet the snake. I think we're going to leave the snake alone today. And so he didn't always understand why he couldn't get what he wanted, why he couldn't get what he expected. But I love him. And I, I wanted good things for him. See, that's what Paul wants for the Corinthian church. He loves them. He wants good things for them. He wants to see them grow strong. He wants to see them grow in their faith. And the good news for us is that's how God loves us. If you know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, God wants good things for you. Sometimes your expectations may be dashed. Sometimes you may not get what you want. But your Father in heaven knows what you need and is willing to love you through your disappointment because he knows what is good for your spiritual welfare, what is good for your eternal being. That's how Paul loves the church. That's how God loves us. Paul says there's a lot at stake here. Your eternal, your eternal destination is sealed, but meanwhile, you've got to walk here on this earth. Examine yourself. Measure yourselves. By these three criteria, are, are you 
Are you walking holy? You receive the man of God? Do you obey the word of God? Now, Paul could leave it there, but Paul's thorough, and Paul never really leaves his audience hanging. So he's going to tell them what the results of this test look like. He ends with this exhortation in verses 11 through 14. Now, some folks will kind of skim over the, the introduction of a letter and, and the last paragraph or so, uh, and, and that would be a mistake, particularly in the New Testament because they would follow the Greek form of argument, and the last paragraph would always be a summary of the most important parts of the letter. Here's the things I want you to remember. So he tells the Corinthians how to respond to his letter. And even as he's doing it, he reemphasizes his love and his blessing for them. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We'll talk about that. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Look, he's given them a list of things to do. A list of appropriate responses. He says, rejoice. Don't be mad. Don't be discontent. Don't be unhappy with what God's given you. Rejoice. Rejoice with each other. Be thankful to him for what you have. Don't let these guys talk about what you don't have, what you deserve, what your rights are, what should be. Be thankful to God and rejoice together. Party in front of God. Take joy in what he's put in front of you. Restore. Don't complain. Don't gripe. Don't groan. Don't, don't knit at each other. Don't point fingers at each other. Build each other up. Don't tear down. And then he says comfort. Now, this is important because if you remember in uh, the first couple verses, we talked about comfort, and we talked about how it bookended. There was comfort at the beginning of the book, comfort at the end. Well, if you take a look, there's comfort in chapter 7 as well, right in the middle. Paul talks about comforting each other three times. He says comfort each other. There's anything but comfort going on in the Corinthian church. There's all this tension. Everybody's wrapped up. Everybody's hyped up. And you're not comforting each other. You're supposed to comfort each other. You're supposed to take comfort in the fact that you're saved. You're supposed to take joy in the fact that you're saved. And as the world looks at you and sees that you're uncomfortable, you are comfortable with uncomfortable situations, that you can take comfort in hardship and even in strife, then they will know that they can be comforted too. Your job is to comfort each other and then comfort the people that are lost. Give them some assurance that God loves them. Show them the gospel. Comfort. To agree with each other. Don't fight. It doesn't mean that you have to surrender everything you believe and everything you hold to be true, but come to an agreement with each other. Agree to live in peace. Not turmoil. So we've seen Paul's exclamation. He's coming back, coming back in God's power. And he says, he says, look at the examination here. I'm coming back in God's power. There's going to be a reckoning. Test yourselves. Are you living like Christians? Do you want to live like Christians? Are you trying to be obedient to the word? Do you accept the one sent by God? And he ended with his exhortation, taking comfort, take comfort in living the Christian life. Be content. 
pass it on to others. Show them what Christ looks like. Paul says there'll be a reckoning for the Corinthian church. And you know, you know what he's done? He's just, he said, look, we're going to practice this. Because it's not my reckoning you need to worry about. One day, the ultimate reckoning will occur and Jesus Christ will return. And when he returns, the same questions are going to be before you. Examine yourself. Test yourselves. You long to be holy. You receive the one that God sent. Do you have a desire to be obedient to his word? There'll be a reckoning for us, brothers and sisters. And your only real test that any of us have to pass is whether or not we know Jesus Christ and He's in us. Like Paul, when Christ returns, if that evidence isn't in us, we're doomed. We're doomed. The gospel says to believe in Him, confess our sins, repent, turn away from our unrighteousness and towards his and that we'll have eternal life. That's the question you have to answer today as you go out of here. Now Paul says to greet each other with a holy kiss. Let me tell you what that was. So we'll, we'll just, a little experience in, in how the cultures change. A holy kiss to the Jews was a light kiss on the lips. That was appropriate. It, it wasn't an embrace. It was a kiss on the lips. Somewhere around the third or fourth century, the church decided that that wasn't appropriate. So they banned it. So when Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss, Here's how I want you to greet each other. I want you to surrender to each other totally. I want you to trust in each other. I want you to show the intimacy of the body of Christ in an appropriate way, not in an inappropriate way. And this is how far we've come. We look at that and we go, ooh. <laughs> We're supposed to show the world Jesus Christ in everything we do. I'm not encouraging you to go out there and kiss each other. But I am encouraging you to examine yourselves the way that Paul told the Corinthian church to examine themselves. And you know what? If you pass the test, if that desire to be close to God is in you, then Jesus can come back at any moment and all will be well with your soul. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace, your mercy, your incredible love. Father, you love us enough, Lord, to usher us through our own disappointment. Father, you love us enough to be patient when we've lost ours. You love us enough to pick us up when we fall, Father, and to heal us and to restore us and to cleanse us in the blood of your Son. And we thank you, Father. We give you all praise and all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.